Welcome to 15 Minutes of Mental Toughness with your host, Dr. Rob Bell. Dr. Rob interviews expert coaches, executives, and athletes about mental toughness and their hinge moments. The hinge. It connects who we are with who we've become, and it only takes one. And now for your host, Dr. Rob. Across the finish line, and you know, I hug everybody, all the close people, people close to me. And then I go into the stadium, drug test quick, and then they tell me, hey, we're going to give you a medal out tonight. It's 11.15 at night. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, tonight everybody left. You know, I was the final event. And they said, yeah, you know, we're, we're scheduled to give that award out tonight. And I didn't bring my ceremonial uniform because I thought, you know, by putting it in the bag, I was, you know, taking it for granted that the fact that I was going to win. Um, so I had to borrow Michael Johnson's top and Carl Lewis's, Carl Lewis's bottoms. And I went out there and they had their award ceremony. And as I stepped out of the tunnel, back out onto the field, nobody had left the stadium. This podcast, 15 Minutes of Mental Toughness, is brought to you by our sponsor, SOS Rehydrate. It's an organic drink mix as effective as an IV drip. It's proven by science and used by elite athletes because only the best will do for elite athletic performance. So for all your hydration needs, our listeners today get 15% off if you enter the code mental toughness at INeedSOS.com. This episode is brought to you by Some Sleep. Go to getsome.com. That's G-E-T-S-O-M.com. We all deserve a better night's sleep. You drink one can 30 minutes before bed, and it's that simple. This awesome blend lets you not only fall asleep fast, but then wake up feeling absolutely refreshed, not hungover or foggy. You're going to absolutely love this product. And in fact, if you go to getsome.com and enter in the promo code Dr. Rob Bell, D-R-R-O-B-B-E-L-L, you get 10% off. Guarantee you're going to love this product. Go there right away. Welcome to 15 Minutes of Mental Toughness. My guest today uh, again, I'm really excited about this because this is actually my first guest that's ever been on a uh, cover of a Wheeze box. <laughs> so he's an Olympic gold medalist in decathlon. And so if anyone knows that if you're an uh, Olympic gold medalist in decathlon, you are declared the world's greatest athlete. Uh, this individual has won three consecutive world championships in decathlon. Uh, has a book called Clearing Hurdles. And when I was a kid... I, uh, I started following this individual's career um, from the year of 1992, and there's a uh, just following what happened. He's going to go into that story, but uh, this is proof that it's not about the setback, that it's about the comeback. Um, my guest today is none other than 1996 gold medalist in the decathlon, Dan O'Brien. Dan, thanks so much for joining us, ma'am. Hey, it's my pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity to you know, tell my story and then share it with people. Absolutely. So what I kind of share about this hinge moment that, that we have. Um, so this is 1992 and I cut out this article in the Washington Post because up till that point in my life, like they had the, the Reebok commercials, right? It was Dan and Dave and who's going to win gold medal in Barcelona, right? Up to that point in my life, like just the best win and that's it. But 
that became a significant moment for you. Can you tell us then, um, you know, walk us walk us through that that scenario, and, sure, and I'll sure. have to interrupt when I can. Well, just to let you know, this is 15 minutes. Is I'll never get the story in at 15 minutes. <laughs> we take a lot longer than that, man, for sure. All right. Um, so you know, I'll tell you what. I, I just I was just so blessed. So in 1991, I won my first world championship. All right, and. Um, the best decathlete up until that point was Dave Johnson. Dave Johnson uh, was a, a 1988 Olympian. Uh, he was, uh, you know, one of the top American decathletes, and I overtook him in 1991. And then in 1992, Dave and I were both sponsored by Reebok, and somebody smart there in the company got this idea to do these Dan and Dave commercials. They're going to take two unknown guys in an unknown event and just throw us out there to the public and, and, and ask everybody who's the world's greatest athlete, Dan or Dave. Um, and you know, I was a world champion at the time. Dave was a former U.S. champ. One of us, you know, they were banking on one of us winning the Olympic gold medal. And what I love about this story is it was risky. It was risky for me. It was risky for Dave. It was risky for Reebok. Reebok wanted to get into the running shoe industry mm -hmm. and this was their opportunity. They had, uh, you know, they had a presence in a lot of other sporting uh, sporting uh, areas, but not the sport of running and track and field. And so they decided to take a chance. They spent their entire marketing budget in 1992 on the Dan and Dave commercials. And they launched those commercials at the Super Bowl. And literally, you know, when those commercials came out, Dave and I were household names. We were, you know, commercial celebrities, so to speak. I'm, I'm all, I, I would have to consider us like the first internet stars. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, the first reality star, excuse me, not internet, the internet wasn't going there, but the first reality stars, because what we were doing was real. What we were doing was, you know, uh, trying to trying to make an Olympic team and win a gold medal. And so um, the year was really, it had tons of ups and downs. I, I enjoyed my time, um, but Dave and I got so famous and a lot of people where I, where I was living and, you know, training at the time, everybody knew who I was. Um, and then all of a sudden now everybody in the state, everybody in the on the West Coast, every you know they knew who we were. But Dan, Dave, and I, you know, we sat courtside at Laker games. Mm -hmm. We, um, you know, we signed autographs for hours at big uh, at big uh, at, at Dick Sporting Goods. And I joke about this, but I tell kids and they don't get it. But Dave and I were so famous, we went on the Arsenio Hall show. <laughs> everybody's just like well, who's our city ooh, 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 ooh. yeah kids. i get oh, it man yeah. for sure so um uh, but there was there was a reality to this yep we had to get through the olympic trials and reebok said look we know this is a risk but we trust you guys are going to make it and so going into those olympic trials i had some physical setbacks earlier in the year that i wasn't able to train as hard as i wanted to um but going into those trials i was pretty healthy Yep. Um, I didn't get all the competitions in that I that I was hoping for, but Dave was at the top of his game. He because I had beaten him the year before, he came ready to do battle that next year, and so we went to the Olympic trials. They were in New Orleans in June, or excuse me, in July. If you can imagine how hot that was, right. humidity off the charts. Um, I had visited New Orleans uh, earlier that year, and so I had seen the layout and everything, and gotten to know it pretty well. But what took place over the next couple of days was just, I think, you know, now is a part of history. You know, it's a it's a part of my negative history. But um, for years, this was voted, you know, the top 10, one of the top 10 uh, biggest failures of 
uh, you know, of of Olympic sports. And yeah. so, on the first day, I was rolling. I, uh, I had uh, I, my my injury wasn't bothering me. I won the hundred meters. I won the long jump. I, I think I might have even won the shot put. You're on world record was, pace, right? I was on world record pace after day one, and then starting the second day, I didn't hurdle as fast as I would have liked to. Um, threw a pretty good discus. Um, and I think I just dipped under world record pace at that point. But we get to the eighth event. Yep. So it's the uh, it's the third event of the second day, the eighth event overall, the pole vault. And the pole vault takes an incredibly long time. So we were out in the hot sun for, you know, the better part of three, four hours. There's, you know, 48 guys, 50 guys who've qualified. And so the pole vault just takes a long time. 20 guys and 25 guys on each pit. And I was on the pit with the better jumpers because they want to they get everybody's finishing heights all about the same so they so they you know put you guys where they think they think you belong but I was a shoe-in to make the Olympic team you know I was a shoe-in to you know uh, to battle for the gold but I got to the uh, I got to the pole vault and all through warm-ups I, I just my my visual cues were off my perception wasn't great and I just didn't feel good I'd made a couple bars in warm-ups and uh, you know I thought well you know when they call my name for the first jump, I'll be ready to go. And I picked my starting height. And what I remember is after, my, what I remember most is after my last warm up, I sat and I waited and waited and waited for the bar to go up to my starting height. And it took an hour. It took an hour and a half. You know, it just, it just kept, time kept ticking by. And so finally I got up, I did some run throughs, felt pretty good, and they called my name up. And I'm quick, up on Quick the, question, Dan. Yes. So, um, and you started, why didn't you bank like just a, a, a smaller one? I mean, was that just experience, stuff like that, just something you never thought of? Because, I mean, you would hit that. The, I mean, this, the height you started at was what, 15.9? Yes, 15.9. Um, and that actually is, looking back on it now, looking back on it afterwards, yeah. that's, a pretty, that's a pretty good starting height. Right. Um, you know, but it's a height that I jumped at to start the practice every day. It's a height that I had jumped at in previous meets. Um, I was a pretty good pole vaulter at this point. Okay. And, you know, I didn't really even consider a start, a lower starting height. That's just what my coaches and I decided on. Okay. And we went with it. Um, but, Sorry. you know, look, no, looking back on it now, it's like, oh, why didn't you jump 14.6? Why didn't you jump 14.11 <laughs> or 15.1? You know, and these are just lessons that I had to learn later. Right. You know, or these are lessons I learned from this. And so by the time I got to my starting height, whew, the competition was well underway. Um, and my first run, my first uh, attempt down the runway was really bad. My my step was way out, which means I was taking off way too early. I went straight up and straight down. Um, and so, you know, uh, one, you know, just one, you know, one chalk it up as one run through and we're on to our second attempt. On the second attempt, you know, I wait another 15, 20 minutes. It's my turn to jump again. It's long time in between rotations, maybe not 15 or 20 minutes, but certainly 10 minutes, 12 mm -hmm. minutes. I'm up again, I come down the runway, and it's a better jump. I'm over it, and I come down on top of it. I just didn't get any depth into the pit. I went straight up and straight down, and just didn't give myself any room, but I barely brushed it, and the bar came off. And so all of a sudden, I'm on a third attempt. I'd never been on a third attempt before, especially in a meet this large. I'd never, you know, besides the world championships, you know, this was the biggest meet that I'd ever participated in. I've been to the Goodwill Games, U.S. Championships, but this was big, the Olympic Trials. Yep. And so I went back for my third attempt. They call your name, and 
you know, you get back then you got 90 seconds to begin your attempt. So you have 90 seconds by the time they call your name to start down the runway. And the wind was blowing a little funny. And so I just waited for it, waited for it. And I kept telling myself at that time, just jump, just execute the jump like you do every day in practice. I even was able to take my mind back to a place in Pullman, Washington, where I jumped every day. And I came to, I started my run and about, I took two or three strides and I stopped because I thought that I rushed it. And so I went back, reset, and I was just telling myself, calm down, calm down, relax. And the thing was, I wasn't too worked up about it, but you could see everybody around me was. My coaches certainly were, and I could see the stress in them a little bit. Well, I started down the runway, and again, my perception wasn't good. I didn't get my hands up early enough, and I left the ground, and I couldn't tell you what happened after that. I had to watch it in the video, but I wasn't even close to making it. I know that when I was in the air, there was a gasp of desperation, like, oh, I gotta get over this somehow, but I wasn't really sure how to, but I land in the pit and I just, I'm, I'm blank. I just, I'm in complete shock. Mm -hmm. I just missed my third attempt at my opening bar to go to the Barcelona, to go to the Barcelona Olympics. And I couldn't, you know, the only way I can describe it is just shock. I wanted to turn to somebody and say, help me, help me. And I was out there all said alone. It was like a bad dream, right? It was a bad dream. It just, it was just absolutely just, uh, uh shocking with no place to turn. Um, and you know, this was probably better. This was probably worse than a bad dream. I've had some bad dreams. You wake up and you feel <laughs> pretty good that you're awake, but you know, you didn't wake up from this. And I remember, you know, grabbing my pole and kind of walking back to the starting point and Dave came over and hugged me, but it was, you know, looking up into the crowd, it was just shocked by everybody. And I didn't know what to do. You know, it was just like, wow, I just, so I picked up my bag, I went back to the warm up area and it was just like, good mess, you know what, you know, where do we go from here? And I didn't have an answer. You know, luckily I had some good people around me, I had two great coaches, I had a massage therapist who was always in the mix with me, you know, so he was back on the practice track. I walked a couple laps on the track and word was starting to get back to the practice track. Oh, Brian missed his opening bar. You know, he's not going to make the Olympic team. And so I was, I was living in it and it was just, it was just an absolute tragedy. Well, yeah. I managed to get from there to a VIP area that Visa had set aside. And they were one of our big sponsors at the time. And my mother was sitting up there and I got a chance to sit with her and talk with her and, you know, had a good cry. And, it, you know, and during all this, I never really felt a whole lot because it was just shock. But when I actually got to really sit and talk to somebody who, you know, somebody who was not my coach or another competitor, you know, reality began to set in and, you know, I had a good cry. And after I had a good cry, I felt better. I, I really felt better. But still the idea that I wasn't going to the Olympic games, just, uh, you know, it was, it was there. My, my worst tragedy had actually happened. You had the presence of mind there to say something how you pitied anybody that would go against you in the next four years well that took place a little later yeah you know i think once i got over that um i did feel bad for anybody that was going to face me in the next four years but you know people ask me how did you get over it what did you do well it wasn't me it was the people around me that helped me 
After I had a good cry with my mom, my coaches came over to me and they said, you know, this is what we're going to do. Because I had just to say, you know, I thought the track meet's over, my summer's over, let's just start planning for next year. So you weren't um, even going to do the last two events? I wasn't going to do the last two events. I didn't see any, I didn't see any reason behind it. But I had, you know, I had these two great coaches behind me and, you know, one coach, Rick Sloan, he's the kind of guy who says, no, we don't quit. You know, the, we, when we quit, we give ourselves another option. And, uh, and then my other coach, Rick, or Mike Keller from Idaho, you know, he, he was, he was all for it. It's like, yeah, let's, let's finish this thing. I had, I had quit decathlons prior to this, but, um, my coaches came over and they said, you know what, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to go out there. We're going to throw the javelin. We're going to run the 1500 and we're going to shake the winner's hands and congratulate those guys on making the Olympic team. Yeah. And I remember when I went back out there, I didn't have a stress in the world. In the world, I didn't have a worry. I didn't think about Reebok. I didn't think about the ads. I didn't think about the Olympic team. I just was a javelin thrower. I threw pretty well. And then the 1500 came in and I ran something in the mid 430s. And I thought to myself, wow, that was the easiest 1500 I ever ran. And I had to think back. It's like, why was that so easy? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, when you're competing at a high level, there is all this stress. And it's all about the outcome. But that moment took me back to when I was just a little kid in junior high, you know, or high school. And I just ran for the thrill of it. I just ran because I loved it. And, you know, it still hurt at the end. Um, and I had to deal with it. I went on the Today Show and talked about it. And it was really a tragedy. But I got back to my room. I got a message from somebody at NBC and they said, look, we'd love for you to go to Barcelona. We'd love for you to broadcast, announce the decathlon. And so I got a chance to go to those Olympics and, and watch, you know, but while I was at those Olympics, I'll never forget. Um, I saw some great performances and I just realized again, why I love this sport so much. You know, mm -hmm. Kevin Young broke the world record in the 400 meters and, you know, Derek Redmond limped around the track of great, great, great British, you know, yeah. great Britain athlete and finish just because he, he told he told everybody look he never not finished a race before so um you know it was the people around me that lifted me up but that moment to me not making a bar at the olympic trials changed everything the next decathlon i went to i had an a plan a b plan a c plan i was so prepared and i think what that meet did for me excuse me it made me take ownership of my preparation it made me take ownership of the failure it made me take ownership of the victories that i wanted to have and i think up until that point i was a very coachable athlete i did exactly what the coaches told me to do i was intense and you know i gave my i gave my i gave my effort but it showed me that i can go to another level and what i tell a lot of athletes that i coach now is you've got to be responsible for your own successes or failures and at that time I think my coaches might have been a little bit more responsible than I was. I was the I was the machine doing exactly what they told me to, mm. and that moment everything changed. Now it was up to me to make all the right decisions, eat the right foods, go to bed on time, spend extra time in the in the in the cold pool or you know whatever it took, looking at film, that sort of stuff, and it just was a it just was a huge maturing opportunity for me and you know I was able to come back and put a string of victories together that uh, you know nobody's really been able to do in the decathlon so um, yeah that was that was my hinge moment the biggest right. failure in my career 
was the biggest learning opportunity and maybe the biggest lessons that I, lesson that I ever learned. You know, I started following your career after that. Obviously, I cut that out. You know, my mom ended up framing it. It's in my office right now. What were the next, um, like mentally from that and then, you know, your preparation heading into Atlanta? What what mentally did you change? Because you talked about the ownership piece, but what else changed for you when it came to, you know, your actual performance and, and preparation? Well, you know, it was, it. We I talked about ownership, but, mm -hmm. you know, first I had to get over the failure. Yeah. And I had to admit that, you know, even though I could run, jump, lift, I was strong, explosive, that wasn't all the game. That wasn't the entire game. I needed to be mentally stronger. And so we, we sought out a sports psychologist. Um, I, got, I got to work with uh, Dr. Jim Reardon from Columbus, Ohio. He's a fantastic sports psychologist. He was our team sports psychologist for, I think, you know, from 93 through 96, not just mine, but a number of other Olympic track and field athletes as well. Mm -hmm. And we developed a plan. We developed a program on how to get over that failure, what to expect the next time you're in that situation, and what to expect when you're asked about it. And we knew people were going to ask about it. We knew people were going to show it. And I couldn't be afraid of it, you know, and it was, and we, we related it to a guy who missed the winning free throw at the end of the basketball game. Mm -hmm. So he was, you know, next time you're in that situation, are you going to do the same thing and, and fail again? Um, but we analyzed the jump. We analyzed the, the competition. Why didn't I jump well? What was the, what were the issues? And a number of things, you know, we saw a number of things that we could change, but after that, I managed to get through another year. I had some major injuries the following year, but I managed, I managed to win a world championship. And I just, I kept winning because I just was, I think I was just mentally tougher. I certainly had the physical tools to beat everybody, but I was a guy out there who, um, who needed to win more than they wanted, more, more than I wanted to win. And I say that because it's, it's when I say, you know, I needed to win, you know, I, I don't come from, you know, I, I, I come from a, uh, a lower class family um, you know I got a lot of love in my family but we certainly didn't have any money for college mm -hmm. um, uh, I, you know I, I ate a lot of macaroni and cheese in the day and you know I didn't finish college so I mean all of my eggs were in this basket and uh, you know I needed to do very well at it I, I, I wanted to make a I wanted to make a living doing that and I was able to do that so every opportunity that I was out there competing, I always felt that the other guys were out there trying to take something away from me. Right. You know, and I think it's a, you know, I looked at it like boxing, you know, somebody knocks you out, you know, they win the prize and you don't. And uh, I just, I wanted to keep winning. I wanted to keep my streak alive. I wanted to be the best in the world. I wanted to be the world's greatest athlete. So, you know, how do you do that? I, you get inspired every day. You, you, you take ownership, you surround yourself with good people, but more than that, you just, you lay it on the line you know, every opportunity you get. And so I think I just was willing to train harder than a lot of other guys out there. My training was just at another level. And I can remember, I knew it was at another level when I would go to a decathlon camp or a big clinic. And we had a couple of them every year. We would come together as coaches and athletes and we would go to Colorado Springs or we would go to San Diego or, or you know, we went to, um, I remember we went to Annapolis one year, the Naval Academy. We, you know, all these guys, we had all these expert coaches that were there. And I stopped the clinic in the afternoon and said, I got to get my running workout in. I was scheduled today to run three times 350. 
and that's what I'm going to do today. And if that means me missing meetings, if that means me, you know, sitting over here listening to, uh, you know, listening to somebody else talk about hydration, well, that's what I'm going to do. And you know, there'd be 15, 12, 15 decathletes there, all trying to get the same thing I was doing. And I'd run three 350s, and people would look at me like, "Oh my gosh, what are you doing? It's, just a, it's a hard run day. Nothing changes for me." Yep. You know, so I think I was just willing. I even had other coaches come over to me and say, "Man, if I could just get my guy to do that, I think we could. I think we could be really, really good." And so, I just, I just was able to challenge myself. I think a lot, a lot more than some other guys. And so, do you I mean do you think? I mean, because that that hinge moment, right? I mean, it took who you were and ended up who you would become. Sure. Um, I, I like asking this question, Dan. I mean, the the joy and the everything that you felt in 1996, winning, uh, especially on home soil. Yeah. Um, well, can you talk about that for a second before I sure, ask that sure. question? So I just, I felt blessed in 96. Mm-hmm. You know, won world championships in 93, 95. Uh, Goodwill Games title in 94, broke the world record in 92 after the Olympics, after not making the Olympic team. Um, broke the world record indoors in the heptathlon. Um, but when I got to 96, um, it was a, it was a mental battle for me. Um, I had to get through the trials, of course. Um, but when I got to the games, I was the best in the world. I was the Olymp- I was the excuse me, I was a world champion. I was a world record holder. I was three-time U.S. champion. I was you know the pressure was on me to not only win, but to set right what happened in 1992. Right. And I didn't feel I never felt alone in '96. I felt like I had this great team around me. I felt like I had this. Um, I felt like I had a country on my side. And so any kind of adversity that I went up against during that competition, um, I just I just was able to overcome it. The decathlon went exactly the way that I wanted it to. I had some ups and downs during it because that's the nature of the decathlon. Yeah. But um, you know my effort level was outstanding. I didn't execute everything perfectly, but um, you know I did what I wanted to do from just a, from just a giving of myself. And, and that's the sport of track and field. When you give a lot of yourself, then you're going to get the results. But, you know, event by event that went by, the pressure began to build. I got through the pole vault. I had a personal best in the javelin. And all I had to do was just finish the 1500 meters. And uh, I can remember just being able, walking out to the, walking out to the line in the 1500 meters. And I just was thinking, you know, I get to share this with, you know, my town, my family, my friends, and it was it was really kind of a cool moment, you know, because you're out there and it's like, cool, one event to go, you know, I got to run this 1500, and it's stressful, but um, I don't think I, you know, I don't think I probably enjoyed a 1500 as much as I enjoyed that one. Yeah, it's awesome, man. <laughs> um, and I got another gift afterwards as well, you know. So I crossed the finish line, and you know, I hug everybody, all the close people, people close to me, and then. I go under the stadium, drug test quick, and then they tell me, hey, we're gonna give your medal out tonight. It's 11.15 at night. And I'm thinking, oh, eh, you know, tonight? Everybody left, you know, I was the final event. And they said, yeah, you know, we're, we're scheduled to give that award out tonight. And I didn't bring my ceremonial uniform because I thought, you know, by putting it in the bag, I was, you know, taking it for granted that the fact that I was gonna win. Right. Um, so I had to borrow Michael Johnson's top, 
<laughs> and Carl Lewis is Carl Lewis's bottoms. And I went out there and they had their award ceremony. And as I stepped out of the tunnel back out onto the field, nobody had left the stadium. Mm. Everybody who was there stayed to hear the national anthem and watch the flag go up. And, and so it was just such a fantastic gift. And what was uh, what was that like? Well, when you do a decathlon, you're exhausted. Um, and I cried and hugged everybody that I needed to. And so, man, I just, I just, I was able though to flash back through the years and think about the times I dreamt about winning. When I laid in bed at night and looked at the ceiling and thought, what's it going to be like when I win that Olympic gold medal? When I was doing a five mile run on the jog, you know, on the jog, and I'd think, what's it going to be like when I win that Olympic gold medal or in the weight room or, you know, I'm up for another third or fourth hard run of the day. What's it going to feel like when I get that gold medal? And all I can really remember thinking is this isn't anything like I thought it was going to be. But it was still one of the most special moments that I ever experienced. You know, I think you build it up in your head. It's going to be like this. or It's going to be like this. And you dream about it one way or another. Um, but it just it wasn't. It was a different experience and you know the the lights were different the night was different but i just remember just being able to share that with so many people yeah and you know i i remember the little the little moments you know the the moments prior to the 1500 and being in the being in the the the, the dressing room with certain people you know it's just like i'm able to i'm able to look back on that and just think golly what a, what a fantastic experience yeah with uh one of the questions i like to ask ma'am is um you know how long did that feeling last you know someone being so driven you had the the uh, you know the huge setback you had the major comeback how long did that last until it was okay now what or what's next do you remember that oh sure i <laughs> i certainly do um you know i crossed the finish line and just was on a just a whirlwind for you know, the next 24 hours, but I remember waking up the following day. So Michael Johnson and I, we had the same representation. He won the gold medal in the gold shoes mm -hmm. that same night that I won. We had a party at Planet Hollywood and we got to meet celebrities. Uh, our families were there, our, you know, the, our groups of people that, you know, we invited everybody and we partied till four in the morning. And I remember getting to bed and thinking, I've done it. I've done it. Yep. I've accomplished, I've accomplished, you know, what I've been trying to accomplish for such a long time. And I woke up the next morning and thought, oh, I'm going to feel great about this. I'm going to, when I win this gold medal, I'm going to feel different. And I woke up the next day and I didn't feel different at all. <laughs> I honestly didn't. And it felt like somebody took something away from me. And that was the reason to train, the drive to get up every day and it was a little depressing but I've always experienced a little bit of post-competition depression because in the decathlon you build and build and build mm -hmm. and then you go to the world championship the Olympic games Olympic trials and then oh, that drive is gone you know why are you doing this why are you doing this and so um, it took a little bit of adjustment I realized look I'm just you know I'm still me uh, you know, just because I won an Olympic gold medal doesn't doesn't make me a different person. But I got to experience all the cool things. You know, I got to put on a Wheaties box and do that celebration, and I got you know standing ovations when I walked into restaurants and 
So I, I was on a victory tour. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that lasted three, four or five months. And you look around and you think, okay, well, what's next? You know, I, I didn't have a plan for what I was going to do after I won the gold medal. And so I went back to what I knew what I loved to do, and that was to train. Yeah. But the drive's not as strong. The ambition's not as great. The stress and the urgency isn't quite there. And so I did it, but I didn't do it well. It took me a full season. So in 1997, I still trained off and on, but it took me probably a full year before I committed fully to training at a high level. And I was able to come back and win a Goodwill Games gold in 1998, but it was difficult. It, it really it really was difficult. I, you know, honestly, I, I felt it immediately. That mm -hmm. gold medal, you know, that gold medal feeling, it stayed with you, but I also felt like, you know, what do I do next the very next day? Yeah. You know, that's uh, that's why I think the process is more important than the product from, from what you just mentioned right there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why I just, I have such fond memories of, you know, accomplishing that because I loved what I did every day. Mm -hmm. You know, I was going to battle, going to battle with these guys and preparing for it, the anticipation of it. And, um, you know, I just lived for it. And, and it took me a while to get back into track and field and into coaching. And I was able to, you know, I was able to help a young girl go to the Olympic Games. I was able to coach a lot of young athletes. And I would say, you know, from a comparable feeling, coaching at that level is, um, is you know, not quite as good as competing, but it was uh, just about as close to the same thrill <laughs> that, yeah. you, that you could think of, certainly. I just, you know, some people have kids. Some people, like Michael Johnson had his whole, his whole, post-career planned out and when he was done he was done and he moved right on you know i i wanted to just i wanted to do it again you know i didn't want it to end yeah and so for me to continue to train i, I trained for another seven eight years you know and it was just that i was unsuccessful i was I, I won when i was 30 and so you know by the time i got to 40 the body doesn't work the same i just wasn't able to train at that super high level had i you know had i not trained as hard maybe i would have got there yeah. Um, so in your book, Clearing Hurdles, um, I mean, you talked about uh, growing up and some of those hinge moments that had happened with, um, you know, partying, drinking, stuff like that. Can you can you shed some light on, on that and, and that experience and how that helped shape you to who you became? Absolutely. So, um, you know, one of the one of the biggest moments, you know, or one of the biggest, you know, defining I guess learning moments in, in, in my life or times was when I went to college. Mm -hmm. Okay, I graduate high school at 17, I turn 18 later in the summer and I'm off to college. I've never lived away from home, never, you know, had more than a part-time job. So, you know, didn't, you know, rarely balanced a checkbook, just, you know, barely paid bills or anything. But I can remember, you know, my parents didn't have a lot of experience with, uh, with you know, kids going to college or anything. Um, I just remember going to college and just, you know, being behind, being behind kids that were more mature than they were, being behind kids who were more prepared to study, to go to class, uh, to be on a to be on a schedule. And I failed. I failed. I can say that I failed in college. Um, the first year that I got there, I redshirted. The second year I got there, I my GPA wasn't high enough to compete. And then I lost my scholarship after that second year, and um, <clears throat> I went to, uh, excuse me, I, I paid my own way 
for about half a year and then realized I can't afford to, I can't afford to pay for college. And so I just ended up dropping out of college and working in the, in the town that I, that I lived in, Moscow, Idaho. But I used to go over the track and watch and I felt like a failure. I, I felt like such a failure that I didn't go home for Christmas one year. Hmm. I didn't, you know, I didn't want to have to face all my friends and say, oh, I'm not in college. You know, I'm not, I'm not on the track team. Um, and it, it hurt. Um, but I knew it was just, it was, it was bad decision making. It was, it was, it was, you know, I didn't go to class. I didn't get the grades. I didn't, you know, I, I went to fraternity parties and I, you know, every Monday night I went to a football party on Wednesday night. It was over the hump on Friday night. It was two for one pitchers down at the, down at the alley, That's right. you know, so there was stuff to do. And so I, when I'd go out and drink with my buddies, I just kind of forget about being a failure and have a good time, you know? Um, I got, I met some, you know, met some great people and spent some, you know, spent some quality time with some people, but I just wasn't going anywhere. And I remember just going to the track and sitting up in the stands and watching guys train and just, you know, I just, I never stopped thinking about it, but it was, but I felt like, you know, I felt like I just, you know, I was failing, but I wasn't giving up. That was the one thing that I, that I realized about the whole process. I wasn't ever giving up, but I spent, I spent a Christmas at a friend's house, everybody had gone home for Christmas, and I spent the Christmas alone. And I remember it was the loneliest that I that I'd ever that I'd ever been, you know, eating macaroni and cheese and baked potatoes and just kind of whatever was in the house. Didn't have much money, um, but you know, drank a lot of beer and smoked a lot of smoked a lot of pot. But I realized I'm not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. I've got to do something. And so after that Christmas vacation was over, after that Christmas break was over, I remember walking over to my coach's house. And, you know, I felt like I'd let him down. He brought me in, put me on a full scholarship, and I, I let him down. And I remember the hardest thing I ever had to do was walk up to his door and knock. And I stood outside of his house for half an hour, I'll bet. And finally, I went up and knocked on the door, and he answered and said, oh, Dan. And I said, what do I need to do? What do I need to do to get going again? Yeah. And, and he invited me in and said, well, you know, what is it that you want to do? And I said, I, I just, you know, I got to get on the track team. You know, I, I, I'm just, I'm wasting my abilities. I got to get back in school. And so he said, you know, let me think about it. And I went back and talked to him again. And he said, look, I'm working on something for you. Be ready. Be ready to drop everything and just go. And one day he called me and said, you want to go to Spokane Community College? It was 90 miles away. And I said, you bet. And I packed everything I had in two, two duffel bags, literally every stitch of clothing or shoes, whatever I had. And he pulled up outside. I threw my bags in. I said bye to the guys. And I, I, owned, I owed people rent money. And, you know, I borrowed money from people and just said, look, someday I'm going to pay you back, man. Someday I'm going to pay you back. And I jumped in the car and away we went to Spokane, Washington. And what I remember most about that mm -hmm. is... You know, what I tell a lot of people when they're at a crossroads, you know, what are you willing to do to make a change in your life? And if you can't say anything, I'll do absolutely anything to change this, then I don't think you're trying hard enough. You know, I've been at that place two, three, four times in my life. And that was one of those moments where he just called and said, be ready to go. And it was interesting. In my book, I talk about this. I almost took a job earlier that week, mm -hmm. right? And I didn't. 
and I didn't. And I just said, man, I can't work here. I'm going to do something else. I mean, I could have I could have been a dishwasher. I could have worked the counter at Skipper Seafood, you know, but it was just like, no, I'm going to do something else. You know, is it better? Is it, it's just, you know, I had a, I had a dream and I dropped everything when I got an opportunity to get back on there. And I was blessed. You know, I was just was in a blessed situation. Coach Keller took me to Spokane, Washington, dropped me off at Spokane Community College. And, you know, the rest is kind of history. I ran for Spokane Community College. I worked in the cafeteria and trained my ass off. And, you know, when I got the opportunity, I got my grades back up at Spokane. I came back to Idaho and competed one final season for Coach Keller. And, you know, we won a Big Sky Indoor Championship. I injured myself outdoors, but it put me back on track. Um, but what I remember most is just, you know, what I when I look back on what I've been through, it's it's the coaches. It's that somebody gave me a 10th, 11th, 12th chance, you know, the coach at Spokane Community College. He just, you know, I sat in his office and he said, we're going to get you fixed up. We got you covered. And it was just like, wow, you know, this guy doesn't even know me, mm-hmm. but he knows I'm here because I'm dreaming and coach, you know, Dwayne Hartman is just like, God bless him. Thank you, sir. You know? And so it was interesting. I got a moment with him. Um, he was an official in the high jump at the Olympic games. Okay. Yeah. And he was on the other pit. There were two pits going on and he was an official longtime track coach and, you know, an official. And I was high jumping and I walked over to him and put my arm around him and said, coach Hartman, we made it, you know? And he was just like, well, I can't talk to you. I'm a judge. I'm an official. And I said, that's all right, bud. And it was just like, you know, we got to share that moment, a moment that he, you know, started and helped me get going again. That's awesome, man. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. So you mentioned something that kind of ties in with your story. I mean, you, you talked about, you know, do you want it or like, do you need it? Yeah. How does that tie into, like, athletes today, like, in that – that ownership, that drive, and that that extra piece that that people need. I mean, can you can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I absolutely can. You know, uh, the decathlon in particular, track and field in particular. Mm-hmm. There's a few sports that you have to endure pain: boxing, fighting, track and field, marathon running, triathlon training, cycling, like rowing. You know, you have to endure a lot of pain and. I, I think it sets itself up for a little bit of desperation. You know, I'm gonna deal with this pain. I'm gonna go through the trials of of the way that I feel on a weekly basis because um, because I don't I don't have a fallback. I don't have a I don't have a I don't have a degree in engineering. Um, I may never have some of those things. I, I have so much respect for student athletes in college now just because. You know, so much is expected of them. Um, but I think to myself, I would rather train a guy who needs it more than they want it. And people, you know, there was a time when the Mexican boxers were the best boxers in the world. And everybody said, well, why were they so good? Man, they were trying to get out. They were trying to create better lives for themselves. They were trying to, you know, they were trying to trying to make some money and, and have a career in the sport. And I think track and field is... is is like that in the decathlon just just because it's 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 not fun all the time it's a grind it's hard work and and when you know dad's paying your bills and you got a credit card that he's re you know that he's credit card payment that he's paying and every time you need a new car and you got his insurance 
I, I just I've seen those kids just not work that hard. Yeah. Um, especially today, you know, young kids want me to describe to them. They want me to teach them how to throw the shot put or the javelin or, or long jump. And if I just explained it to them correctly, they would be able to go out and execute it. All right. And so many of these things I had to figure out for myself. Why? Because the coach's instruction is only part of it. The other part is you figuring out how to do it on your own, understanding the position you're supposed to be in, watching somebody else do it, replicating what they're doing. Half of it's on me as the coach, but the other half has got to be on you. And I was the guy who, when the coach wasn't around, I did my run. When the coach wasn't around, I lifted my ass off. Yep. And, you know, today, these days, I think, I don't know about just these days, but, you know, I just a lot of people just, they want that, they want that direction. They want somebody telling them exactly what to do. And, uh, you know, when I needed it, man, I was, I was so self-motivated. I was so self-driven. And, I, you know, I just, I just don't see that quite as much, uh, as much, in you know some other people even during my career i didn't see that so much in my competitors and now you know i've had a chance to coach in college at some different levels junior college and division one and i get a little frustrated because only a couple people have wanted it as much as i do right you know and that's gets a little frustrating and when you talk to former athletes that's one of the biggest things like god nobody wants it as much as i do so they're not willing to spend as much time they're not willing to invest as much you know, I, I had a couple of guys who were electrical engineers, you know, they missed practice because they, you know, they had to, they had to prepare for projects and, you know, that wasn't the kind of kid I was. Yeah. It was like, look, I understand you got class and, um, you know, you guys are here to get an education. I, you know, I was on that track to, to be the best. You know, I mean, it's, uh, <clears throat> I mean, it always comes back to right? Like how bad do you want it? Yeah, sure. Especially in sports, yeah. okay, and and then then that's then that's not to say that I don't respect anybody who, you know, wants it all, but when I was trying to be the best, it was the most important thing in my life. My training, taking care of my body, just working my ass off was the most important thing in my life, and so, you know, I didn't have pers close personal relationships. I didn't have a job. I didn't. Ha I wasn't going to school at that time. And um, you know, people ask, "Well, how? You know, how do you get? How do you get good at something? You know, how do how do I get really good?" It's just like, you know, it's all time allotment. When you do that, and how many kids just sit out in their driveway and do skateboard tricks? Mm -hmm. You know, the more time you spend, the better you're going to get at the thing. Yeah. And you, when you spend all your time, I remember when I was in high school, I didn't. You know. I, I was on the basketball court. That's all I did was play basketball, and I got pretty good at it. You know, so now all of a sudden, as an adult, we're trying to balance five, six, seven, eight things, and we're not really great at anything, and we wonder why. Why aren't I better at this? You know, I should be better at this. Like, you know, think less, think less. Don't take on so many. You know, don't take on so many activities. Yeah. And, and you know, and that's what I love about the decathlon as well. Is it's it's the ultimate test in balancing. Mm -hmm in balancing all of those different things what a, what else about mental toughness like when you think about that um <clears throat> what is it uh like what does it mean to you so mental toughness to me is is 
will and determination. You make a deal with yourself and you follow through with it or you don't. I remember my entire life, my mother used to tell me, you don't finish anything you start. And she was right, you know. Uh, she couldn't finish, you know, she couldn't get me to finish chopping the wood. She couldn't get me to finish my chores, you know. But somehow along the way, I managed to pick the hardest event in track and field and finish it. Mm -hmm. You know, so I can remember, so when I think about mental toughness, certainly during my career, I had moments. There were moments. Um, I had to be mentally tough in 1992 to go back out there to finish and then overcome that. But even before that, I remember my first world championship. Um, I got a chance to meet Bruce Jenner, Bob Mathias, and Rayford Johnson, Milt Campbell, and, and Bill Toomey uh, early on in my career. And these guys all had won Olympic gold medals. And, you know, 48 and 52 was Mathias, 56, Milt Campbell, 60, Rayford Johnson, 68, Milt Cam or, uh, Bill Toomey, and then 76, Bruce Jenner. I got a chance to share, you know, I got a chance to hear their stories and listen to them. Um, and I got a chance to have a real personal relationship with Milt Campbell. And Milt Campbell is in the Swimming Hall of Fame and the Track and Field Hall of Fame here in the United States, and nobody has, else has done that. Mm. It's very impressive. He did judo and he was growing up. And, but Milt was a fantastic decathlete. He won his gold in 1956. And Milt tells a story how he told his mother that he was going to those Olympic Games or he was coming home in a box, meaning that he was going to die trying to win that gold medal. And it's just like, well, you know, that's a little extreme. Nobody's going to come home in a box, you know, but he was willing to die for that gold medal at that time. And this was a man that I'd gotten real close to and Milt, you know, said, gave me a lot of different advice, but one of the best piece of advice that he ever gave me was look yourself in the mirror and call yourself the world's greatest athlete. And I thought, okay, easy task. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't look myself right in the mirror and say, you, my friend, are the world's greatest athlete. Why? Because I hadn't achieved it. I hadn't done it. Maybe I didn't deserve it at that time. For track, for me in track and field, it was all about the results on the field. You know, if I'm jumping high enough, if I'm running fast enough, I know that, you know, this is what I can do. And so I started to practice it. I started to practice it. And over time, I was able to look myself in the mirror and say, you're the world champion. You're the U.S. champion. And one of my coaches, Rick Sloan from Washington State, he would get in on it as well. And so I remember in 1991, the year that I won the world championship, about three months, four months out of the world championships, my coach would ask me, are you going to win a world championship? And I would, when he first asked me, I thought, eh, I could. Right. I got the ability. And then another month would go by and he would ask me again, I'm two months out now. And he would say, are you going to win the world championships? And I would say, yeah, I think I can. And I remember just weeks prior to going to Tokyo, he looked me in my eye and said, are you going to win the world championship? Championship, And I said, yeah. And I believed it. At that moment, six weeks prior to the world championships, I was the world champion. And so I ate like it. I lifted like it. I slept like it. I was walking into the stadium in Tokyo, Japan, a world champion. And so I get through the first day, had some ups and downs, you know, struggled here and there. But I'm leaving the first day, and I remember on the second day, it was pouring rain. You know, it's 9 o'clock in the morning, 90 degrees in Tokyo, and it's just pouring rain. And we're under the tunnel, and we're waiting to go out and hurdle. 
and we got seven minutes to race time. And nobody wants to go out and stand in the rain until you absolutely have to. And they're not, you know, delaying this or anything. And I thought, oh, this is going to be a credit day if it keeps raining like this. But I remember thinking at that time, this is my chance. At the end of the day, they're going to give the world championship to somebody. All right? Whether it rains or whether it doesn't. And I looked around and thought, somebody's got to win this world championship. And I just walked out and I stood in the rain. I set my blocks, I stood behind my blocks, and I just let it just rain on me thinking, you know, I'm gonna get wet anyways. And I looked down my row of hurdles and I thought, today I win a world championship. Today, at the end of this day, I'll be a world champion. And I just performed magnificently. At every, at every, every time I had an opportunity, I separated myself from the field, a better discus, a better pole vault, a better javelin, you know, and I got to experience uh, Mike Powell and Carl Lewis long jump competition was going on right there. And I just watched it. And, you know, so I'm living in all of this, but it's a moment like that, that I think about mental toughness. I just said I was going to do it and I did it. Mm -hmm. And so when I had an opportunity at a later date to do it again, I could go back to that moment and that's that's what I think about when I think about mental toughness. When I'm on my fourth 300 of the day and people around me are throwing up or can't go another run, I'm going. Why? Because I just when I see people around me kind of struggling, I, I step up. I just I get tougher. Um, you know, mental toughness to me, it's its tough because it's easy to do it in sports because it comes naturally to me. I think mental toughness in life is a little bit uh, is a little bit harder. It's more about the discipline. Um, you know, after my career, I moved to Scottsdale, Arizona, and I drank beer. You know, I just played golf and enjoyed my life and, you know, thought it was going to last forever. And you know what? That caught up to me as well. So when it was my, when I decided to, you know, not drink or not drink like that or stop drinking it was difficult it took mental toughness to do that but it also i think took me to look myself in the mirror and say who are you going to be who do you want to be who are you being today and and that that's mental toughness making the promise to yourself and keeping it yeah and i love that whole process about uh looking yourself in the mirror and doing that is that something you still do today not as much as i used to but but Certainly, I, I do a yeah. lot of self-evaluation, but I think as you know, as I've gone through life, you, you get lazy. You know, like I said, it, it came very naturally to me in sports, mm -hmm. but in life, it's a struggle. Yeah. Um, you know, I struggle with everything else in life. You know, that everybody else does. Um, you know, worries over financial. Uh, I'm a bad decision maker, um, but I do. You know, I I do live and move towards my hopes and dreams you know i think that's one thing that really hasn't changed since i've gotten a little bit older um you know accepting that you're getting older you know your body's hurting a little bit i got a bad low back um you know it just life life gets a little tougher and and you got to get tougher as well yeah man i love that um <laughs> And I can, man, that'd be great if there was an image of you standing in that rain there in uh, Tokyo. I'm sure there is, right? I mean, um, but I can just picture that, you know, you standing out yeah. there and, and probably what that did to your competitors as well, too, right? Yeah, and that was one of the reasons I just, I think my guy, my competitors looked at me like, what is this guy doing? He's crazy. Yeah. Um, 
but I remember at the end of the night, it was, it was the start of, you know, that was 1991. You know, I was, I was the decathlete of the nineties. It's like, it starts tonight. Yep. And, and I, that was the thing. I didn't care where I was in the world. I didn't care who I was competing against, you know, but I could flash back to that moment and just garner strength at, at other times. You know, there've been times as well that I didn't feel, uh, you know, didn't feel like I had trained enough. I didn't feel like maybe I deserved it as much. Um, and in those moments, I was able to find, I was able to find purpose and strength then as well through inspiration of somebody else. Um, you know, whether it was a, a quote, a song, a poem, you know, it's just like, okay, I'm not feeling 100%. How do I how do I get 100%? It's just like, man, the inspiration is out there somewhere. You know, I felt like an artist and, you know, I felt inspired a couple of times and it was, it was you know, it was moments like that that, that got me through. Yeah. Well, I'm hoping that's what this, uh, this podcast episode will do for somebody else, man. All right. <laughs> Dan, what, uh, where can people, you know, be able to follow you, get a hold of you? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I got a real nice website, uh, danobryan.com. Um, people can contact me there if they'd like me to, you know, if they'd like to learn more about my story, but also uh, speaking opportunities. I, Absolutely. You know, I don't post maybe as much stuff on there of what's going on, but um, you can find me, you know, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, uh, certainly, certainly on Facebook. I post pretty regularly from track and field events. Um, I just got done with the NCAA championships on ESPN and, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm on the A team with Jill Montgomery and Dwight Stones and, you know, it's going to going to these high level college track meets or going to professional track meets is uh, is uh, is most times where people can find me. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Um, Dan, thanks so much, man. I uh, I had no idea back in '92 uh, when this happened that uh, I'd be interviewing you 20 some years later about it, man. Well, I appreciate you following the story, and you know, I, I love to meet people like yourself who say, "Man, I remember you guys. I remember Dan and Dave," um, and because I was in it you don't realize that it affected quite as many people. Mm -hmm. You know, I've had a lot of people come up to me and just, you know, just say, Oh man, you, you guys changed, you know, the athlete that I wanted to be. Um, cause I kind of still look at the decathlon as a, as a unknown event, you know, mm -hmm. just an event that a lot of people don't know about, but Dan and Dave took it kind of out of the dark and yeah. to another level. But I'm just, I, I'm, I'm thrilled to know that, you know, it, it affected you and, well, and, and yeah, impact, same mean. thing, man. I mean, if you know, I, I took, uh, you know, I mean, I didn't start college till a couple of years later, man. But then taking that first psychology class and then seeing how, wow, this guy saw a sports psychologist. Like, what is that, man? Like, I knew I wanted to do something in the sports field, and it was tattooed in my brain at that point. So, well, that, what's interesting is when I started working with a sports psychologist, we didn't talk about sports. Yeah, <laughs> we cleaned up all the other stuff, and sports got easier. Yep. Yeah, for yeah. sure, man. Dan, thank you so much, brother. I appreciate the time. All right. Thank you. Glad to be on it. Thank you for listening to the Mental Toughness Podcast. If you like what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also check us out on Twitter at Dr. Rob Bell or visit our website at drrobbell.com.